Hello and welcome to I Think You're Interesting. I'm Todd Vanderwerf, The I, and I Think You're Interesting. There has been no TV show I've loved quite as much as The Americans on FX since it debuted in 2012. It's a riveting little spy drama about two Soviet spies who are working and living in the United States and posing as a normal American married couple. And what's amazing about this show is sort of how the circumstances of its production are very similar to the story being told on screen. These are two people who were thrust into, as we'll talk about in this episode, sort of an arranged marriage of show running. They had never met, and suddenly they were working together on what turned out to be one of the best shows on TV. So this week, I'm so happy to talk to Americans creator Joe Weisberg. Hi, Todd. And his co-showrunner, Joel Fields. Hi, Todd. Thank you for joining me. Thank you. We're going to talk a little less about the show itself for a while because I want to talk with you guys about, you know, kind of your histories and influences and things like that. Uh, and Joe, your journey to creating The American strikes me as it might be an interesting story. So I'm wondering, how did you get started in TV writing? Because you had a whole life before that. Uh, I did, if not if not maybe several lives. <laughs> um, probably the most germane one to this show was I spent a couple of years working at the CIA mm-hmm. in my sort of mid and mid-late 20s, um, during which time I never had any intention of uh, writing about it because mm-hmm. sort of the whole culture there is it's all very secret. And uh, you think even after you leave, you'll never breathe the word about it. But about 10 years after I left the CIA, I was sort of wandering around and uh, realized that I wanted to write a spy novel. And uh, it, it took 10 years for me to be able to sort of make that break and feel that I could write about it without kind of betraying everyone I had worked with and, and whatnot. You are technically allowed to do that just as long as you send anything you write into the CIA right. for them to say yes or no. And um, I wrote this spy novel. And uh, after it was published, I got a call uh, from an agent at CIA named Joe Cohen. I, my phone rang. I really, it's hard sort of for people in Hollywood, I think, to quite believe this, but I really didn't know what CAA was. I mean, it just wasn't, it was, I I didn't know about it. I didn't, I just didn't know what that was. And uh, he asked me if I'd ever thought about writing television. And I said, not really. And he said, well, would you like to try? Hmm. And I was, you know, at the time I was uh, teaching uh, high school and also going to grad school and also writing novels and also, you know, raising a kid. And so I was really stressed out, overworked and broke. Yeah. And so when somebody calls you from a what sounds like a sort of magical place called CAA and says, do you, you want to think about writing television? I hesitated for like, I don't know, maybe a half a second. And I was like, yeah. <laughs> and that's sort, of, that sort of how the whole thing began. What about some of that? A lot of people who end up writing for television have wanted to do it their whole lives. Uh, but what about having those years when you weren't writing for television? What has that given you as you've you know worked on various TV shows, but especially the Americans? You know, I was always a writer. I did from the time I was a young kid, I wrote. I just wrote, you know, fiction and, and novels and short stories, not not TV. But I, I think the advantage of of not sort of being having this sort of beeline towards television for me uh was just that I I spent so much of my life out doing other things and not and not pursuing this. So so for example, I spent, you know, a bunch of time working at the CIA and I had a lot of other jobs and and those all of those things proved to be very helpful experiences. A lot of writers don't need that and have great careers w- without doing that. But I think that the writers who do do that often just get a lot of grist for their mills. Right, right. So I think that all TV shows on some level, especially by like season four, are about the circumstances of their creation on some level. Mm-hmm. And what's interesting, what's really interesting about this show is it's about an arranged marriage that works out really well. 
you guys are in essentially an arranged marriage. Like, I don't think you knew each other before this show. Tell me a little bit about how you guys came together and like sort of those first meetings and when you realized, okay, this might work out pretty well. So that agent who called him, Joe Cohen, happens to be my agent as well. And I had read the pilot script for the Americans and loved it. And I told Joe that having finished working to help launch the first two seasons of Rosalian Isles, I knew one thing. And that was, I did not want to go back and be running another show. I wanted to take at least a year to be developing. I just moved into a new house with my wife and two kids in LA. And that was going to be the main focus. But I did mention that there was one pilot that I had read and really loved, and that was The Americans. And I remember getting a call from Joe saying, remember that pilot you really you said you really loved? It's been picked up. It's going to go. Would you be interested in that? And I said, yes, that that I would be interested in. And he said, okay, well, it's going to be in New York. Would you really, would you move to New York? <laughs> and at that point, we had just moved into this new house. There's boxes everywhere. I mean, right. we're two weeks or three weeks into this new house. Two young kids. I turned to my wife. I remember we're sitting on the bed together uh, at the end of a long day. And uh, I said to my wife, hey, remember that show I, that I told you I loved, The Americans? We'd move to New York for that, wouldn't, wouldn't we? And she goes, yeah. <laughs> so I said, <laughs> yeah. The percentage said, of wives who have that response said, is very low. He said, really? And I said, yeah, we would do that. We love New York. It'd be an adventure. Anyway, now it's home. Um, and th- there were also a lot of other tentacles of connection between us. Uh, John Langraff, who runs FX, is a longtime dear friend of mine. Eric Schreier, who's there, had gotten to know Joe. And so shortly after that phone call, there began a series of phone calls, which really did feel like efforts to put an arranged marriage together. So I was getting calls from John and Eric and Joe and other people saying, you know, you've got to talk to Joe Weisberg. I, you guys are really going to hit it off. I think he's the kind of person that you're meant to work with. It really did sound like they were talking about a marriage. And then we got <laughs> on the phone, Joe and I, and had a long initial chat. And then you flew out to LA and I believe we met at the Coral Tree in Brentwood and uh, started to get to know each other. But that first season was a very intense process of figuring out not just what this show was going to be, mm-hmm. but how our friendship and how our collaboration was going to work. Mm. And we did it very consciously. Yeah. So in, in a lot of ways, what you're saying is right. There is, there is an element to the show that is the story of how we figured out how to work together. You know, it's interesting because the whole time this is happening, there's this kind of background hum that I think I was, you, I, th- I think, knew it from your many years in television. And I was hearing it for the first time about how when a show is kicked off, these arranged marriages are very common, but usually end in disaster, Yeah, right? That's what you hear over and over again. And then you hear specific stories about all the disasters and all the sort of damage that is left in their wake. And, and, and I think that's almost the norm. There really aren't that many stories of them working out. And then as Joel said, there are all these people who did really know both of us quite well individually saying, but you two guys could really, could, could really, you two kids could really make it work. <laughs> that said, I think it could have gone either way. And the truth is we spent a lot of time, still do spend some time, but during that first season, we spent a lot of time consciously talking about how we were going to navigate the relationship. Yeah. And at a time when we were, we really didn't have space in our schedule to do that, we prioritized it. And I think that helped us enormously and helped the show enormously. 
It's interesting you say that about ones that have ended disastrously because on the show, Philip and Elizabeth occasionally meet other people who were in the same situation as them and they're always like single or something horrible. <laughs> <laughs> Cautionary tales. How do, I'm always fascinated by partnerships. Like how do you divide up labor? How do you decide who does what? How do you know to leave room for each other's thoughts and ideas? It's interesting because what you hear most often in about partnerships is a kind of division of labor as being the most efficient and effective way, especially when there's too much work, which mm -hmm. is, of course, what you have in this job. And I think Joel and I found a, a different approach. We find that we're most effective when we do everything together, mm -hmm. when we're able to put our brains together. I think it's because it's creative work, but creatively by putting our brains together and sort of being together all the time, that's how we work most effectively together. We're much better off walking and breaking a story together than saying, you take that story, I'll take this story. It just goes faster and more productively mm. if we push forward on everything. The one exception to that is email, which it took us three or four seasons to figure out, but uh, we have we have on weeks and off weeks for email, mm. which makes after hours much better because we have a very good sense in terms of the nuts and bolts running of the show, what we need to take, touch base with each other on and what we don't. Yeah. And so it's good to have one person on call for those emergency calls from the set and for those emergency emails so that the other person can generally stay away from the device. I think you do a better job than I do, but I'm, I'm working on keeping it turned <laughs> off or at least in a separate room. It's nice to be on your off week when the other person's doing email. But if you're on the off week and it turns out like that's a really busy week when the other person has to get all the emails, you feel a little guilty. <laughs> <laughs> oh, but then there's another thing creatively. I think one thing we realized early on, I don't think even this was a conscious decision, but it was just part of the evolution of the relationship was we would never really engage in unconstructive creative conflict. Right. There's always creative dialectic that leads to better stuff. But I don't think either of us has ever really dug in on a creative point because mm -hmm. our sense is at some point in the show, we realized if we both don't see a path forward as the best path forward, it's not. Mm. And there's going to be a better way that we can find together. And I think it's not that that's led to just a uh, less conflict, but it's it's always kept things in in a positive dialectic. And I think it's one of the reasons why us working on things together is so constructive and is faster because we protect each other from wasted time down blind alleys. We'd rather stand still right, and then go down an alley that doesn't feel just right. So right. when you find that path forward, there's a good chance it's uh, it's the best. Although we're certainly capable of going down some pretty bad ones. <laughs> do you remember? Do you remember a point in those first seasons where maybe you were kind of at loggerheads, and then you you came to a blind alley and figured out a way out of it? Well, it won't usually. I just wouldn't describe it as as loggerheads. I'm not trying to say that we can't be in conflict or that we would run away from that. It's just that with with creative deci decision making, that's not usually how it would work for us. We would come to blind alleys all the time, hmm. uh, but we would just have to work our way out of it through through brainstorming and, mm -hmm. and, and through ideas. Um, but it wouldn't usually be loggerheads because if, as Joel was saying, if one of us had an idea or liked an idea and the other one didn't like it, then we, we just quickly came to the feeling that the, let, let it go because we trusted each other a lot. We had the very similar aesthetic and we trusted each other a lot. So if the other person thought it wasn't a good idea, you believed they were right. Mm -hmm. So let's pursue something we both like and yeah. that'll be better for the show. By the way, and that it, doesn't mean you couldn't, if you're really passionate about it, you talk about it. But the general feeling was that there, 
there shouldn't be ego in that. Mm-hmm. So you could talk about it, press on it. And then if, if you've sort of made your best case, but it's not being seen, you let it go in, until you find something that can be seen by both of us yeah. because that's just going to be more right. Yeah. I, I think the reason we also probably were able to quickly learn to trust each other in that, I mean, this is an insanely wild, fantastical made-up guess, but I'm just saying we probably like 75% of each other's ideas. Mm-hmm. So it's not like you're coming in every day and the person's knocking down each other's ideas. So if you like 75% of each other's ideas, the other 25% are, are pretty easy to let go of. Right, right. So one thing is like Joe created the show. But you both are showrunners on the show. And I'm sort of, how has that worked in terms of like facilitating, because especially in the early days, I imagine, like maybe you had some ownership over the idea. How did you learn to sort of let it become both of your idea? Because it really is at this point in the show. I think that just sort of happened organically Mm -hmm. over time. You know, when you create a show, you know, I spent a couple years working on it and a lot of time and a lot of investment went into it. But then you go to work on a show And that becomes the new thing. And the amount of time and effort that goes into that becomes so overwhelming. And I think for me, you quickly see that you're both, you're both making, yes, it's a continuation of the old thing, but it's also a new thing. Mm -hmm. And also if you, if you have a partner in that, who's really in it with you, it just, it just not after too long became clear to me that trying to sort of, it was what Joel was saying about the ego to need to maintain a sort of a hold on that as my thing would have been sort of a denial of the reality we were in, mm-hmm. which is we were in this ship together and it was a, sh- it was a ship. It's like a kind of, at first, especially it's kind of a rickety wooden ship on very tough seas. Mm. So if you don't want to, can I swear on this podcast? You can swear if all you want. If you don't want to fucking drown, you better like, cling to your partner mm-hmm. in that rickety wooden ship. And so that's a partnership. Mm. This is what right. it is. Yeah, I want to say there, were, there was one specific moment for me, and then uh, uh, just a general extension of what Joe is saying. The specific moment, I think, has to do with when we first wrote together. There was a fair amount of story breaking together as we got the first couple episodes together, but then we wrote the Reagan episode. Mm. And it wasn't you take these scenes, I'll take these scenes. We sat together when we wrote it, and it became really clear that we could put our brains together in a very constructive way as we did that. And I think for me, from that point on, we were just writing the show together. Yeah. And then I'll, I'll say generally, just to extend on what Joe said, when you run one of these shows, there's so much to do. There's so much pressure. There's so many hours put in, particularly in that first season. In success, there's enough credit to go around for everybody and in failure, who cares? But ultimately there's really a choice to be made right. in the hierarchy of how you approach these things. And the choice is, is the most important thing to me, the way I'm perceived by the network, the press, the public, and how I feel, or is the most important thing to me, the show and what it is right. and its quality. And you can tell yourself a lie about one or the other, and you can say, oh, well, I'll you know, you can dress up your feelings about your ego as feelings about the show, but ultimately in the process that becomes clear. And the truth is we all have egos and those have to be factored into the calculation somewhere. And we all care about the show and that gets factored in. But at some point, one comes first. Right. And I think clearly for Joe, really from the beginning, it was all about the show. Well, for you too. I mean, I'll, I'll, now I'll phrase your thing in another way, which is that in this job, a lot comes at you to massage the ego. 
right? It, it comes at you all the time, in fact. For better and for, for worse. For better and for worse. So, you know, it's plenty. It's, it's, it's enough. And I think that there's a whole other way to look at it, which is really what you're saying, which is we've got a job. We've got a job to do. And it's a hard job. And we have people we work for who we have responsibilities to. And we have a lot of people who work for us who we have responsibilities to. I mean, that's one of the first things that John Landgraf talked to me about is the responsibility of people who work for you. And we have a whole team that, you know, makes this show. Mm-hmm. And if you if you just sort of start thinking about it that way and and less about, you know, me, 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 that's where I think you start to have the ingredients to not just make a good show, but what I think we're almost most proud of here, which is a happy show. Mm. It's pretty it's easy. Pretty to ironic make. to be making a happy show about such <laughs> unhappy people, but you got to get your happiness somewhere, Todd. <laughs> it's, uh, I'd say it's, it's easier to manage your ego when you're in the middle of a season one, nobody's seeing it. And, you know, Hurricane Sandy is bearing down on you and all those travails you sort of went through in season one. It's got to be harder when it's, you know, you're deep into it and people are like, this is the best show on TV. There's like pull quotes, you're getting nominated for Emmys. How do you keep the focus on the show when you are getting those, you know, those prestige things happening to you? I want to say two things. One only has to do with the fact that you mentioned Hurricane Sandy. Mm. And I just have to paint for the podcast <laughs> listeners a Great. little picture. Do it. So we're sitting in this office. It's our it's what we call our writing vault. Mm-hmm. Joe and I share an office next door that we have our desks at where we kind of do the business of running the show. And this is where we sit and we write. Mm-hmm. And we have our flat screen that we're very proud can flip vertically so it looks like a script page when we type. Mm. And we're sitting at this table, which is about the height of a desk. Mm -hmm. I'd say a little higher than a desk. So just so you know, during Hurricane Sandy and afterwards, the water was up to here. It was up to the top of the desk in these offices. Mm. If there was a script sitting on the tabletop, it was untouched. Mm. But the rest of this office was destroyed by the hurricane. It had to be decontaminated afterwards. Oh, yeah. we, we were out for a year. At least we think they need to can decontaminate. <laughs> they said they did. The fact that you can't pronounce the word anymore, which is pretty easy to pronounce, is not a good sign after we've been here for five more years. Um, but as for it getting harder, I think I think it actually was it was not hard. It did not get harder. And I think the reason for that has to do as with any marriage, arranged or otherwise, with the foundation that you have. Mm-hmm. And ultimately, if you have a a solid foundation of communication and not just putting ego aside, but being aware of the reality of ego. I mean, I remember early on, we had a very open conversation where we said, how do we want to handle press? And I think you just said, let's just do everything together. Uh, And just imagine what that means. Uh, You know, okay. So that, that's another way of saying we're in this together. Mm -hmm. And so I, I don't, I don't, I don't think it's gotten harder. Do you, Joe? I don't think so. You know, I'd also, you know, I'd again mention FX and, it's very grounded over there. It's just the the way they work and the way they treat people is just grounded. And I don't know. I, I we haven't told this story in a while, but you know, you remember that time when uh, I think that was even season one or, or season two when uh, I don't remember what was going on. There was like some kind of problem or another, and uh, I remember John Landgraf taking us aside and and saying he wanted to apologize to us. And later we were like, oh, that's like he didn't do anything wrong and neither did the network. Then it had to do with something. It had to do with like the timing of the DVRs or something, right? <laughs> like something wasn't quite, remember there was some issue yeah. where Dish Network or something didn't have the right timing for the DVR on right. their thing. So the network thing was cut yeah. off and everybody was so apologetic. Yeah. And we were but just saying, well, nobody, that's a mistake. Yeah. yeah. Everybody, you know, that nobody set out to say, oh, let's, let's cl- cut their episode short by three minutes. <laughs> yeah. But I think the point of it that I, that I think was being made in a way was that there's a way that you, way to treat people. 
you know, that it wasn't important to him to not only wasn't important to him to sort of be the boss who we we're afraid of, it was the opposite mm. that he wanted to be the boss who feels that he's there to help us and to support us. And that sort of sets a tone yeah. about how you behave, mm-hmm. you know, not yeah. just towards them, but towards everybody. Mm-hmm. This show has another so here. I don't want to say arranged marriage because now it's, uh, but you have Carrie and Matthew on the show and you have to <laughs> right. cast two people who are going to be in this incredibly complicated relationship. And from the pilot, they have to be in that relationship and living in it. Tell me about finding those two actors and like what they've brought to the show over the years. Like, like what was the casting process for those roles? I remember walking uh, on the Fox lot with John Landgraf and saying to him, so, you know, he was talking about, he was saying to me, look, the odds of one of, one of these shows succeeding is not necessarily that great. Mm-hmm. And I said to him, so what's, what are some of the things you can do to screw it up? And the first thing he said was miscast it. Yeah. So I was like, okay, well, I wish I had any idea how to cast a show. <laughs> but, uh, you know, Gavin O'Connor, who directed the pilot, was was brilliant at casting. Yeah. So, the you know, Carrie, uh, you've probably heard this story before, but a bunch of us were t- sitting around. I can't remember if we were all in the same room or some of us were on the phone looking at a list of like, you know, 50 actresses of the appropriate age to right. play Elizabeth. And, and everybody, nobody said anything. Everybody was kind of stumped. It was just a hard part. And after about 30 seconds of silence, John Landgraf said, Carrie Russell. Hmm. I mean, that's just, you know, he, he has explained that once in a while he has sort of a, a bolt like that. And right. he just got that. He just got that for her. And I, yeah, I didn't know her work except for Felicity. So I didn't really get it. And then I went home and I watched Waitress. Hmm. And all you had to do was watch Waitress. I was like, oh, my God, she, yeah. she'll be amazing. So, <laughs> you know, that was that for her. But then uh, Leslie Feldman at DreamWorks, uh, which is now Amblin, um, said, you guys should take a look at uh, Matthew Reese, who is great and has done a bunch of television and including Brothers and Sisters and is in this play now in New York. And uh, Gavin and I went to see that play and we brought him in to read with Carrie. And uh, I think Gavin knew immediately that he would be, he would be, perfect for that. And, you know, we've told this story too about how uh, Carrie slapped him in the in the scene in the pilot where she slaps him. And there was this kind of electric chemistry between them in, yeah. in that audition that was just amazing. Although I think it's safe to say nobody saw where that was going. <laughs> <laughs> and going forward through the series, like they've done so much, they've been in so like, what has that meant to the show to have that bedrock of, again, perfectly cast people? First of all, there's a bedrock of human decency Mm. And quality work ethic there that is unparalleled. Uh, they are just extraordinary people, and they set a tone on set that's wonderful for the crew, for the other actors. They rehearse their work weeks in advance. We'll get calls or emails from them asking these detailed, nuanced questions about scenes. So they're great artists, and they're great to work with. And it's hard to calculate what it means for the show. I think it's just safe to say there'd be no show. The show couldn't exist without actors who have that depth to their art because there's nothing we can't write that they can't elevate. And uh, there's nothing we can write that they can't elevate. So uh, it's it's just a gift. You know, I've I've been on shows before where you have to write somewhat defensively because there are things that your actors are good at and things that your actors maybe can't quite deliver. And in this case, 
it's all only a question of what we can dream mm -hmm. and they'll make it better than we dreamed. And then you add to that the fact that they make the process delightful. Right. It's pretty wonderful. I uh, think one of the hardest things to do in TV is cast kids who are going to grow into the role in the way you want. Like sometimes you get lucky and get Karen and Shipka, and sometimes you get like 15 Bobby Drapers or whatever it was by the end. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm wondering, when was there a moment when you were like, oh, Holly Taylor can do this? Oh, I don't know how to pronounce his name, and I never have, but uh, Kedrick? Kedrick, Kedrick Salati, yeah. like he can do that. Like, was there a moment when you were like, oh, okay, we're fine? Because a lot of this show hinges on those two characters. Yeah. Well, I can sure. think of moments in particular, but I can, I can think, boy, that, that made a difference. The moments that pop out to me aren't moments of relief, but rather moments of delight. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I mean, Kedrick, and they both came, I think, season three, right in the same episode, actually. Holly confronting her parents, mm -hmm. Paige confronting her parents. Boy, we rehearsed that, I think, about a week to 10 days before we shot it. And mm -hmm. it was really at that rehearsal uh, with Carrie, Matthew, Holly, and the director, Larissa Kondracki. And seeing that performance come to life was just a beautiful thing. And then I'd say for Kedrick, it was a small thing, but God, in that same episode where he comes down the next morning and is just doing Eddie Murphy, doing <laughs> Mr. Robinson's Neighborhood to his parents, but there's something so real about it. It just teleported me back to my childhood in the eighties. Mm. Um, we're really lucky with those guys. Well, we we didn't know that Holly was going to have to carry this much weight. I think from early on we knew we were going to tell this story with her, but we we there were ways to tell this story with her that were more economical and mm -hmm. that didn't in a sense focus on give her as much screen time in a way. So her her ability to carry so much and do so much have become so central to the whole show that that just wasn't predictable. So it's it's been very lucky and, and, a, and a delight, as Joel says. Well, Joel brought up the 80s. So now I'm going to talk about the 80s. <laughs> uh, I believe that like the original idea for the show was not, was contemporary or roughly contemporary? No. I, I, or I was inspired say, I, by Yeah, it was more inspired by, you know, I, I got a call from the guys at DreamWorks when, when all those spies were arrested in 2010 who said, do you want to do a show based on this? And and fairly, I I didn't think it made any sense to do a contemporary. So fairly quickly, mm -hmm. I just, I decided to put it back in the past. And we have a lot of '80s shows right now. Uh, after the Americans, have also but like Halt and Catch Fire, Stranger Things, things like that. Tell me about approaching the '80s and recreating the '80s, not as you know, everybody's wearing Miami Vice clothes and like be, being very excited about Alf and things like that. Like, <laughs> how did you approach the '80s and make it feel? not like a glaring period piece, if that makes sense. Well, the first thing you do is you hire really, really great department heads mm. and you, you find great artists uh, to be your production designers and your costume designers and to be in charge of props. And then you remember that people exist in these times, not in thin slices, but in kind of a thick, rich trailing comet mm -hmm. of time. So you could just look around this room and see technologies of different periods, clothing from different periods. We know there won't be anything anachronistic from the future, right? but people's closets go way back depending on who they are as characters. Yeah. So it's, you know, you, as long as you're not doing something where everybody looks like they just stepped out of that month's issue of Vogue from that year. I think you also remember our, our sort of aesthetic in general with the writing as well, which is you don't hit people over the head with things. Mm. You know, if they're a zillion really obvious props or if you know the women are wearing huge shoulder pads in in every episode 
you're just trying too hard. Right. You're just trying too hard. People in the 80s weren't really thinking all the time, hey, here I am in the 80s. They're just, <laughs> you wanted to feel like they're living their everyday lives. And that's I, something we discussed, discovered really as the show went forward too. It applied not just to set design and to production design and wardrobe, but really to how we broke story, which is even though we were doing a spy show, when we tried to do an episode that was centered around spy stories that we were trying to make more exciting, it wasn't as good mm-hmm. as when we just figured out what the story was and told it as if it were really happening. Yeah. And what we discovered is if we sacrificed anything, it should be on the altar of truth and it feeling real. Mm-hmm. And so the same goes for all the period stuff. Graham Yost had this has always had the same thing with what's what's on a what's on a television in, in a scene. You know, if we if we ever tried to put like something super 80s or super made sense for that scene on a TV screen in a scene, he'd be like, well, why is that on right at that yeah. second? That's awfully lucky. And he'd be like, ah, rats. all right, take it off. <laughs> uh, uh, you tried to scrub this room of spoilers before I came in, but the big sign that says Stan's new partner is Alf is still up. <laughs> uh, They'd I, be great together. Yeah, they would that's be. Not a, forward that's not to a bad this, pitch. This show being part of the Alf cinematic universe. Uh, <laughs> Well, another thing I like, what were some of your influences? Like when you were coming up with the look of the show, like what were movies and other TV shows or even books that you turned to that you were like, we want this to permeate how this show feels, how it looks, how people consume it. For the visual style, we started out with a lot of the great films of the mid and late seventies. And, you know, one of the challenges in making television today is people are listening to things on much better sound systems. They're watching them on much crisper flat screens Mm -hmm. and they're being filmed on these great digital cameras. And so we've had to find ways actually to degrade the images a bit and to make it feel more like old style film Mm -hmm. because what you start with is so crisp and clean. Yeah. Mm. We also wanted to uh, avoid the spy tropes. So we knew from the beginning, we didn't want to be in, you know, shadowy alleyways and staircases and and things that kind of brought that up. We wanted to to have something that felt uh, more ordinary and in in a sense, more suburban. Mm -hmm. Interesting. What were, uh, you mentioned that you had written a spy novel. Were there, are there like great spy novels that you approached as like, this avoids the tropes really well, or this is like a good version of the tropes that we just don't want to do. I've always been uh, interested in this, uh, issue that John Le Carre uh, talks about, which is that, um, you know, people think of his novels as as very realistic, but they are not realistic. Mm-hmm. The espionage does not work the way it's presented in his novels, except for this one novel he wrote. Uh, I think it was called Small Town in Germany. I think that's the right one, which is realistic. But as he points out, nobody read it. Mm-hmm. So what he says is that his novels instead are authentic, that they feel real, even though they're not. So I've just always been fascinated by that. I think that's a a very good point. And when I wrote my spy novel, I set out to write the most realistic spy novel ever written Mm -hmm. because I had to sort of learn the lesson myself. And I got like 30 pages in and I was like, yeah, this is so boring. (laughs) (laughs) So, so I changed, I changed my goal to, I'm going to try to write as realistic a spy novel as I can Mm -hmm. while still not putting the reader to sleep. Yeah. And I think to, to a degree with this show, although that was the, the goal was, was different. Um, I wanted very much to show aspects of espionage more realistically than you'd seen them before on television or on film. So in particular things like, you know, 
surveillance and counter surveillance and and tradecraft were there were there ways to uh put that on film that you hadn't seen before and i remember a lot of our early conversations were about how we could do that and how we could accomplish it with a with a budget and uh and I, you know, I think we feel pretty proud about a lot of the work we've done there. Mm-hmm. I, I think, in fact, in a lot of ways, the show has has done something new in the genre. But I don't know if I can even express it simply as a piece. But I can say that in various areas like the trade craft, uh, we've shown things you haven't seen before in ways you haven't seen that are realistic. Mm-hmm. Mm. What do you think is the biggest stretch you've made in terms of dramatic license? Because any career, like you said, is pretty boring if you approach it exactly realistically. So what's a, a stretch you've had to make in the name of, you know, making this fiction and and compelling? The spies, Philip and Elizabeth, are a lot busier than real spies <laughs> and doing a lot crazier shit. <laughs> That's that's the big stretch. So probably if you were a real spy, you wouldn't be running 15 different operations at, at the same time? Well, I mean, if you really want to get technical about it, sometimes spies do run a very big number of operations. Uh, I'm not sure they should. Mm. I, I think that it's not necessarily what's called good security, mm-hmm. although you could probably get people to give you a different opinion on that. Um, even those 15 operations would not be as batshit crazy as, mm-hmm. as the ones they run. They might be 15 kind of quiet, quiet operations. And you wouldn't be running around killing people, sneaking into this, sneaking into that. You might have, you know, you, you wouldn't be sort of just as bananas as they are. Yeah. Yeah. But so is the body count, that's probably safe to say a stretch. Yeah. <laughs> body count is much higher on our show, but the body count is always higher on television. Yeah. <laughs> I've yeah. always wanted someone to take a year on SVU New York mm-hmm. and uh, calculate the number of uh, crimes committed and run them against the actual number of those crimes committed in New- in the real New York right. that season. Right. So I think our percentage probably is somewhat similar. Mm. Yeah. Well, for most spies, the body count is zero. Mm. Yeah. Mm. That, that would be the usual body count. Oh, so our percentage <laughs> is smaller. <laughs> Filming in New York uh, to substitute for DC, um, I'm sure has been, uh, I, I think has worked really well. You know, I, you, you, there are very few times I'm like, that's obviously New York. Um, <laughs> but also you mentioned earlier, you guys like to take walks. Um, and I was talking with Alan Yang of uh, Master of None very recently. And he was saying that he and Aziz Ansari like to take walks as well. What is it about New York that feeds the creative energy of this show? What is it about this city that makes it it work? It'd be funny if we we ran into each other, past each other, and then accidentally we did a Master of None and they did an Americans <laughs> episode. <laughs> I, just, I ended up walking with Alan Yang and you yeah. ended up walking with Aziz, I'm sorry. <laughs> there was uh, two and a half men in CSI swapped writing staffs one time, and I would love to see you and Master of None swap writing staff. That'd be great. <laughs> I think you're joking. No, that really happened. And what happened when they did uh, that? The uh, CSI episode was about the death of a sitcom actress. And the Two and a Half Men episode was, I don't remember what that was about. It was not very funny, though. I can't <laughs> imagine it would be. <laughs> a bold move. That, what was that, like season 12? Yeah, that it, was, when you it do was, that? was like 2007 or yeah. something like that. They did this. Yeah. So. What is it about New York? Boy, I don't know. I always used to, I, I, I took walks in LA all the time. And in fact, when I was... Uh, Doing Ugly Betty, they started calling it the Joel Stroll, mm. and uh, then that carried on to some subsequent shows. So I've I've always liked to walk and write and walk and work, although I think never as prolifically as Joe and I do. There's a there's a lot of walking on the show, and anytime we have a story problem, we'll take a walk. I'm waiting for Fitbit's sponsoring opportunity. It hasn't <laughs> arrived yet. <laughs> 
we're all fans of something, me, and you're going to say, wow, this is, this is the most typical thing ever for you, Vanderwerf. I'm a fan of newspaper comic strips. I love looking back at things like Peanuts, Calvin and Hobbes, some of those, those great old strips. And like, I have lots of books of them. I have lots of like figurines from some of my favorites. It's, it's kind of a weird thing, but it's, it's what I'm into. But with everything changing about the way we consume culture, the nature of fandom is changing too. So I want to tell you about an awesome new podcast about exactly that change. It's called Fan Club, and it's about why we love what we love. In each episode, you'll hear from amazing, brilliant people across the pop culture landscape, musicians, artists, fashion designers, chefs, even scientists, about how their work is being experienced today and how they think it will be experienced in the future. This week, Ross talks to chef Tom Colicchio about how technology has transformed the way we eat. Listen now by subscribing to Fan Club on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. Uh, I do have to talk about the uh, Russia of it all. Um, when you guys started, I remember that TCA session. I went back and looked at it and you were getting asked questions like, can we, is this like really realistic? And, <laughs> we don't, and get, do that, people so we care, don't get that yeah. so much anymore. Do people time. care about Russia now? And you guys launched in 2012, I think. Um, as the show's gone on, Russia has become a bigger thing in the news and you have kind of stuck to your idea. These were still people like the communists were still human beings as the news has gotten bigger and more all-encompassing, has it? How has that affected how you think about the show, if at all? You know, it's it's so important for us writing the show to keep that out, yeah. right? Because it's a period show. So as soon as that seeps in, yeah, then it's almost the same thing as everybody wearing shoulder pads. Then mm-hmm. you've got clever little things, and it bumps the viewer out because you feel the authorial voice saying, "I know what shit is going on today." So we're very careful to to work in a bubble. And to to not let that into the writing, um, but it's impossible not to think about it all the time, <laughs> all the time. And uh, and I think it's 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 mostly upsetting. I mean, I have nothing but a negative reaction to it. Not just on in a political sense that I wish Rus- Russia were not being uh, recreated as an enemy, but which is of course you know that's the important stuff. But on a less important, smaller scale, the show was you know, conceived and written all these years um, with an idea behind it, which was to uh, show people a, a way of reconceiving the enemy themselves and realizing how similar they are to us and trying to humanize the enemy. And that lens is just a harder one to look at mm-hmm. when the enemy has been vilified again. Now, you know, who's really watching TV thinking about that highfalutin stuff anyway? Maybe not too many people, but you still hate to see it. It definitely felt to me as this season launched, though, that there was a lot more interest around the show because it accidentally had this real-world promotional campaign that you couldn't have paid money for. Did you feel that way as well? Well, there's been a lot of questions about Mm -hmm. the Russia stuff, and so that could be perceived to be interest, but we'll see what that translates to in terms of audience and, and other reception. But I think, as Joe says, for our writing and making of the show, we stay very much in that bubble of the 80s and don't want it to creep in, we know that all that interest and all that real world stuff, though, will impact the way the audience experiences the show. Mm -hmm. And that's not only fine, but to the extent that the show is a challenge for people to try to remember that enemies are human beings Mm. and that there is a powerful human tribal instinct to create an other and to have an enemy that that in many ways defines all of us. Ironically, one of the things that binds us in the human family is our need 
to have others. That's an easy thought to explore with the Russians when our connection with them is at an all-time high. Mm -hmm. But maybe it's an important thing to explore when we're slipping back towards that kind of animosity that leads us to demonize the other. Mm. Well, I will say that what's happened is made for some very funny tweets. It really gets a good laugh most every day out of things that people are tweeting. Very, very good Philip and Elizabeth memes out there. I did did like the one about Stan Beeman being appointed the new director. That was good. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, No, uh, uh, do you... uh, this is a story also about- So Philip and Elizabeth becoming waiters at Morialago. Yeah, that's one of my favorite. Yeah, that was a pretty good <laughs> one, yeah. <laughs> this is in some ways a story about the collapse of the Soviet Union told in the United States, What, especially in seasons four and five. What has been the challenge of telling this story that most Americans, myself included, know kind of happened, but don't know a lot of the details of through a lens that's very hard to like. We can't cut away to Moscow every five seconds, though you do have characters over there. Our approach to that- you know, what's happened in season five is for the first time we had a story that was really sort of independently taking place there. Mm-hmm. And we didn't really plan that. It's not like from season one or two, we're saying we have to do that. There was obviously Russian stories of the resident Shura that felt very much like the DNA of the show to have a parallel Russian stories taking place. But we never were sort of lamenting that we couldn't tell a story in Russia. But suddenly... Oleg was there, and, mm-hmm. and it seemed like a chance to tell stories about that society and things that happened were happening there, and it seemed like a very rich vein for us to dip into. Um, but what, in terms of the challenge of it, I think we generally – the challenge is just jumping off that cliff. Yeah. You know, you know that there are always going to be both story challenges. There are going to be audience challenges. There gonna, there's always the fact that – a lot of the that is going to be extremely, I don't know if esoteric is quite the right word, but it's going to, there's going to be a knowledge base about cult, cultural things, political things, historical things that people don't have. But if you tell the story right, then it hinges on emotional things. And so the lacking sort of the, the historical things that people don't know or the social things people don't know should be interesting rather than frustrating. Mm-hmm. But you, you're just, you're just, you're just taking a leap. You hope it's going to work. Mm. Yeah. Now that's sort of a philosophy of, for the show overall, which is you really yeah, focus right. on like the emotions of the characters over, I don't necessarily know what Stan and Adderholt are doing with the the woman from the resident chair this season. Like I have my guesses, but you don't always know the exact of exactitude of the mission, uh, but you do know the emotions of those characters. Tell me about developing sort of that idea, because it feels like that's grown throughout it, the series. It, it is. It took a long time to come to. Uh, but we almost think of it like, uh, you know, those plays where you can just follow the actors anywhere you want in the house. Mm -hmm. What you're following is the characters and you pick up the story as you go, but it's the human drama that you're connecting to. And I think that's something it took a while for us to come to, but we found that the most interesting way to tell this story for us was to simply play the scenes as they would happen for the characters and to let the audience catch up to whatever the story was rather than to have the characters explain for the audience things about the story. Well, I think it was born out of the spy stories because Mm -hmm. they were enormously complex. So if the characters explained them, what was normally, exposition is always kind of boring, but to have them explain what they were doing spy-wise would be, there'd be so much exposition and it would be stuff that they would never in a million years say because they totally knew it. Yeah. So we could not tell the spy stories that way without the show sucking. 
Mm. And so we just had to throw that all out and have them just do their thing. And then once we started doing that, it worked. Mm. Okay. We, we hope it did. <laughs> <laughs> the show got bigger and bigger with every season. Like you had more stories and more characters and, you know, like at a certain point, like Martha was doing her own thing. And now we've got, you know, Oleg off in the Soviet Union. Was there a point where you felt like there were storylines or characters you couldn't service as well because the show had just gotten too big? Only occasionally when you wrote that. <laughs> <laughs> I think there's some who would still like to see more male robot storylines. <laughs> we, we think we got just the right amount. <laughs> mm-hmm. I, I do think sometimes I, I wanted to see more of myself, the Beeman marriage. To me, that felt like a story that um, I wanted to see more of, but I think I was virtually alone. <laughs> but like, because I remember- Well, they were terrific together. Yeah. That was, they yeah. were they were compelling. Very early on, yeah. you talked about it as a story about two marriages across yeah. the street yes, from each other. Right. And that kind of, you kind of got away that from didn't that. Happen so you should take so that up. That didn't Tom, you should so take much. that up with Stan Beeman. He's the, really the one who screwed that one up. <laughs> this is true. I will. Yeah. I will. But tell I me mean, about if, if anybody cared about the Beeman marriage, it should have been him, and maybe he should have kept his paws off Nina. <laughs> this is true. This is true. Tell me about sort of learning to let go of that aspect of the show. Which aspect of the, the show? The idea yeah. of the two marriages across the street from each other. I think it just didn't happen. I think we actually made a pretty strong effort to break stories in that direction. Mm-hmm. And when it doesn't happen, you got to move on. But yeah. I, I will say, I will say this, you know, to the extent that keeping things real was really important to us. Whenever we've tried to break stories, because that seems like an exciting spy thing to do that hasn't worked. But similarly, if we try to break stories, because that seems like a perfect thematic parallel, mm-hmm. that's never quite worked for us either. The, the, the way subtext and theme has really percolated for us best is for us to take a walk, talk about it a lot and then write the story and then be surprised afterwards that our subconscious minds put what we needed into the stories. By the way, we thought, you know, season one, we thought Paige and Matthew were going to date each other, mm. but that didn't work out. So we'd let it go. And then look what happened. Yeah. Years later, it came back. Season one, we thought that Philip was going to take Elizabeth to a secret church somewhere and marry her at the end of the season right? because we wanted this uh fake marriage to become a real marriage, but it didn't feel right at the end of season one or when we tried it everywhere in season two, and then we forgot about it and here we are. Yeah. Yeah. What have you most learned from working on this show about marriage? What has it made you realize, not necessarily about your own, but just about the institution? I I got in a, a lot of trouble in season one from everyone except for my wife. When I was quoted, I believe in the New York Times as saying, that ultimately marriage is going through the motions. Mm-hmm. And I think everybody, except for my wife, that that was uh, somehow a knock on marriage. What I meant, which fortunately my wife understood, was that ultimately you can have whatever romantic ideas you want about marriage and you can have your feelings, which are of course important. But to me, ultimately, it's, the, it's your actions, your many, many, many actions and interactions that make up a marriage. Mm. And at the end of the day, your hopes and dreams don't make up your marriage. And certain big moments, unless they're really extreme, don't make up the marriage. It's the collection of all of these moments. Mm. And Philip and Elizabeth, even though they were going through the motion of pretending to be married for all those years before the series started, they had done all of these things. Mm-hmm. And that accumulates into something. That accumulates into a marriage. Yeah. And so I think I knew that on some sort of unconscious experiential level, but the show's allowed me to think about it. Mm. Mm. I've been uh, happy to find how, two things. One, how much people see that marriage is 
complicated and how much they want to, how much they enjoy a story about that, how much they appreciate seeing that reflected on a show mm -hmm. uh, rather than the sort of love song version of marriage. Um, and I think the other thing is that although, you know, people talk a lot about how the show is so dark, so sad and so difficult that um, th the fact that this marriage, at least so far through, through season five has, has endured and that these, and that there's a, a love underneath it that is actually grown mm -hmm. through all the darkness and all the, all the difficulty. Um, I think that just, that just says something about uh, marriage and the capacity of two people to, to weather things and, and find the positive and, and find love even in, in times of troubles, which mm -hmm. I think is very romantic. Well, we're about to head into season five spoiler territory, but I have one last question before we get there, which is you're heading into the final season of the show. This is a show that has traditionally, I don't want to say eschewed catharsis, but often you will be like, oh, Misha's in the United States. No, he's not. Um, <laughs> as you're heading into a time when people expect there to be some sort of catharsis, like, are you, are you, I don't want to ask if you're running toward it, but are you intrigued by that notion of, okay, this is the final statement or does that kind of scare you? Do you I feel mean, scared? Just say you know us. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, all right. Okay. Um, well, before before all the people who haven't seen season five go, I just want to tell you, I think the best spinoff would be Claudia becomes headmistress of an all-girls school. I would watch that. I think that'd be great. Margo That's Martindale. Good. I yeah. like that too. Some teen girls like Facts of Life, but <laughs> with a with a Soviet spy. But she is a handler. Yeah, she's yeah. a handler. Yeah, yeah she's, she's slowly training them. Maybe you could move Paige over too. Great. We should have just given her that cover for this show. Yeah. <laughs> that would have been pretty good. That would have right. been good. Or- uh, since there was a well, there was a season and a half or so when she was doing a sitcom on CBS, I think we should someone should call Leslie Moonves. We should just she should just be doing that sitcom on CBS <laughs> concurrent to this show. <laughs> let's go, let's get Greg Garcia on the line right away. <laughs> All right, um, we're going to do some spoilers now for the most recent season. So if you haven't watched, please tune out. Thank you for listening, though. Give them a little bit of time. Okay, so this season has had a lot of what's felt to me like Philip and Elizabeth being asked to do pointless, busy work. Because the center's like, and hey, we got to do something with them because, you know, the Soviet Union's falling apart. Would you say that's sort of an accurate read of what's been going on with them? Specifically, which thing? I'm thinking about, and I love this episode with the woman who they thought was a Nazi collaborator yeah. and they had to track her down. And there were a couple other storylines, especially when they figured out the wheat was not, right. you know, being crafted to kill people. Right. Um, but yeah, where it seemed like this is just, a, they're tying up some loose ends because things are kind of falling apart right. and they want to just, you know, do this now. I don't think we had a sense that anyone inside the USSR at that point was sending them around to do pointless things because they thought things were falling apart. I think it's a little early for anybody to be thinking that, A. Mm -hmm. And B, I fell up and Elizabeth in our minds, are still very important assets for them. After all, the wheat story was an extremely important story. Mm -hmm. And even after it turned out they weren't making that wheat to, to try to destroy the Soviet Union, then they wanted to get their hands on that wheat. And the episode that you're talking about where they went after this uh, collaborator, uh, I think that was something that was very important to them. If you if you imagine uh, what the Israelis, think about what the Israelis did to go after ICANN, sure. mm -hmm. this is, a, I would say, a similarly important thing. Sure. I think it touches on the issue you were asking earlier about uh, realism, which is we have mostly, and maybe more this season than before, uh, not run away from showing the side of espionage that is dull and that involve and that does involve busy work. And by the way, you were also referencing the FBI stuff mm -hmm. uh, with Sophia 
and 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 the people they met even before they met Sophia, uh, which also has that flavor to it. Um, so in our minds, it's not pointless, mm-hmm. but it it can be drudgery. Right. It can be drudgery, and it may be that the fact that it has a point to it, uh, maybe that point's only going to be revealed later. Or maybe that point, I do think sometimes we worry that the, we talked about how the spy stories are so complex. Maybe the point is a little bit obscure mm. and is sometimes uh, getting lost. But at least to us, it is it is never pointless, mm-hmm. but it is sometimes uh, busy work. This season has really been read by both fans and critics in terms of the penultimate season. Yeah. How much did you think of this as set up for the final season and how much of it did you want to set aside as its own story? And, and if so, like what story were you really trying to tell? It's a complicated mix, and and I I think we'll give you a much better answer to that after you see next season. It's hard to discuss that really fully without too many spoilers for for next season. But it is probably in our heads uh, more of an independent season than people think. Right. Um, it, it is not. Um, I hear some people saying, for example, well, it's it seems like a very slow season, but maybe that's because they're setting up stuff for next season. I'm afraid we have, for those who find it slow, no such excuse. <laughs> <laughs> how, how do you how do you sort of feel about as you've heard that this has been a really slow season? Because I, I I thought that for a while, and then I looked back at like say season three, and it's not appreciably slower than season three. <laughs> it's just that I'm thinking, oh, Stan should be catching on to them because I know the last season is coming. Like, how have you felt about balancing out that sense of we want to be ourselves, but also now people know the end is coming? Oh, it's, a, it's an interesting question. Uh, it hadn't occurred to me that maybe people were finding this slow because the end is coming mm-hmm. rather than because it was somehow different than prior seasons because it hasn't felt to us to be different. We were just trying to tell the story that we wanted to tell this season. We felt like a lot happened. It's true. I think we were thinking more about um, emotional things for Philip and Elizabeth over the course of this season. I mean, yeah. obviously leading up to the the marriage was a big thing and then some big decisions for them towards the end of the season, some big stuff with Paige. But I don't think we were thinking about pace when we right. broke this season as much as we were just thinking about telling the story. Yeah, yeah. You depleted the cast a lot in season four. Well, I think that's that's a really good point. You know, in season four, there was a lot that we had to cash in on, that we did cash in on in season four, and that worked really well. So there was very propulsive... Martha story that people were invested in. And there was a very propulsive Nina story that people were invested in. And I think that created a sense of pace through the season. If you think about, I think Nina got whacked in episode four mm-hmm. and then Martha disappeared in episode eight. Mm-hmm. And in a 13 episode run, those are some pretty big moments. Yeah. And this season built in a different way, but we've always tried to start each season with a pact between us to do something different. Right. Mm. So that's where we wound up this season. Mm-hmm. Um, speaking of Martha, she pops up a few times this season. She does. Uh, now she's adopting the most adorable child in the world, <laughs> yeah. perhaps. Isn't um, she cute? How do you see that character fitting into the story both this season and like, I know you're not going to tell me if she's in season six, but do you feel as if you would like to see more of her? Fans of the show? Well, I think you've answered that question yourself. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> Because you know we won't answer it. Uh, <laughs> I think we say, can by say saying you know we won't answer it, we won't. But we, we can talk very, about this season. We were very happy with how that story played out this season. Mm-hmm. Um, each of those scenes sort of came to us, not all three at once, mm-hmm. but sort of one 
after another, after another, each of those scenes we thought would be the one scene. Yeah. And then another came and another came and each seemed to be a perfect one to come after another. We, we just feel very attached to that story and, mm-hmm. uh, and felt that each time she came up, it would be a surprise and then give a more uh, emotional ending to the story. And it's, it's just a, a nice story that the final adoption scene, uh, we had broken a, it was basically the same story, mm-hmm. but a different kind of setup and a different location and a different way it happened. And our uh, Russian consultant, Sergei Kostin, who is a, a wonderful guy and a wonderful collaborator and uh, just gives us all kinds of uh, useful stuff about, you know, Russian culture and things like that. Uh, he just had a sort of a little thorn in his foot about it. And uh, he just kept coming to us and saying, I don't know, there's something bugging me about this scene, but he never really could quite tell us what. And that's not, he doesn't usually give us advice on or, or complaints about a particular scene. And finally, he just call, uh, emailed us one day and, and said, I just don't think that's how the KGB would do it. I think they'd do it in a park mm-hmm. and they'd have it set up so that the teacher knew. And he really rebroke the scene for us. And it was so much better than what we had. Mm. And, 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 and I remember after we read that email and we were both like, Oh, let's yeah. do that. <laughs> I think that was one where we decided to take a walk to see if we could write the scene. And I can tell you it took a half a block because I know exactly where we were when we realized that that scene had written itself. <laughs> yeah. Everybody's exhaustion this season, except for maybe Claudia and Henry, is palpable. Um, everybody feels like they're sick of doing this shit, especially certain characters. How do you convey that to the audience without it just being like, I'm tired? We just, think, we just think back to how we felt season one and write that. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, but it was like, did, was that a story you wanted to tell about people just getting sick of this stupid stuff they have to do? Well, not stupid, but you know what I mean. <laughs> I think a lot of, so much of that is on the actors and the directors. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the story is, is, is of course one of that happening to these to these people, but you probably could tell this story with a lot more uh, vim and vigor if you wanted to. But yeah. but they know they know what the story is, and boy, those they accomplish a lot with with a look. And you know, Matthew in, or you know Philip in particular is 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 increasingly beaten down and worn down, and and the way Matthew uh, brought that and, and developed it throughout the season is, is is incredible. So we'll we'll write things. I mean, if you look at one of our scripts, we'll write things like. Philip sits there, mm-hmm. period, new paragraph. Elizabeth looks at him. Yeah. <laughs> right. And then we'll sit in this room with the couches. We'll sit with bosom chairs around there and the director will be there. And Chris Long, our brilliant producing director, will be there. And the assistant director and Mary Thulis, our line producer. And we'll have a tone meeting where we go through every scene in the script that's going to be shot the next week. And sometimes we'll spend three hours in a tone meeting. Sometimes we'll spend a full day from morning to ordering and dinner, going through every scene. And we could spend a half an hour talking about Philip sits there, Elizabeth looks at him and (laughs) talking about multiple layers of interpretations and subtexts. But ultimately, Carrie and Matthew have to sit and look. Yeah. And they have to deliver all of those dimensions and they do. But, you know, after seeing the first three episodes, we never had to say in a tone meeting again, Philip's beaten down. No. (laughs) You're like, well, he's got that. Yeah. Yeah. I do think back to like the pilot and those characters were very different from where they are at the end of season five. What to you has been that the most marked shift over the first five seasons for Philip and Elizabeth? I think the biggest shift is you you look at that marriage and how they relate to each other. And 
the generosity with which they see each other now is such a progression from where they started. They each were individuals with their own feelings. And now they're fully married. Mm. Uh, I remember when I, before I got married, my dad uh, passed away now, but he was a rabbi and he married me and my wife. And before we got married, he sat down with us and he said, that he always has a meeting with the couple. He said he usually has several meetings with couples before he marries them to see that they're ready and so forth. But he said, I, I know you guys, I don't need to have the meeting, but I wanted to sit down and say some of the things that I say to couples. And one of the things he said is, he said, I always tell people that before you get married, you're living in the me world. Mm-hmm. But when you get married, you're no longer in the me world, you're in the we world. Yeah. And you're in the we world from now on. Mm. And if I think about season five, even as they're in their own turmoil, they're in it with each other. And yeah. it's a very beautiful thing. And it's beautiful to watch Matthew and Carrie playing that. Yeah. Yeah. Just a, just a couple more here. They float the idea of going back to the Soviet Union and, you know, oh, our kids will adjust. And to me, I was like, that's crazy. <laughs> <laughs> like Henry especially is like, but is that, that's on the table, then it's off the table because of the the development with Kimmy. And that to me feels like it will only hurt them more to have that be pulled away from them. What was, what was your thought in thinking in developing that as a storyline? Like, okay, maybe it's time to retire. Just kidding. You can't. We think that for them, the place they're at, how exhausted and beaten down they are, this dream that has been playing out over a couple seasons in different ways of home, just the idea of home. It seemed to us, if this were real, they would have to be seriously thinking about going home at this point. Mm-hmm. Of course, it came up very concretely with Gabriel. Um, but that, that's what real people would, would be considering, and they would consider taking their kids with them. Uh, as bad of an idea as it might be for a lot of reasons, they would consider it. And in fact, real illegals who served for many, many years abroad did take their kids home, including the ones from 2010, they weren't necessarily making a choice, but nevertheless, right. their kids came home. And in many of these cases, including other illegals where it was a choice, the results were not always positive. It, it was very, very complicated, but that doesn't mean it didn't happen. Though That would have been a good TV show too, in, mm-hmm. in a sort of difficult difficult and sad way. Um, but it felt that them sort of going towards that, and then as happens with them so often, having the having the rug pulled out uh, because of who they were. And again, because of a side of Elizabeth that is fundamentally complex, but positive mm. because of what she believes in, because of her steadfastness, because of her loyalty. And then seeing something so great about Philip and their marriage, which is at the end of the day, he respects that part of her. Right. Even when it's going to fucking wreck them in so many ways. He's not going to sit there as you can often see in a marriage and just clash and fight. He's, he's going to love her. Yeah. So that, that seemed like a good story to us. I'm fascinated by the way you use Renee, uh, because you've taught us to try to read characters. So we spent all season trying to read her, (laughs) especially (laughs) that finale. Is that, uh, I assume that's intentional. That's a, that's a good description. That that was the plan. Mm, Well, it's a show about trust and identity. How do you know Mm. at the end of the day? Mm. And finally, um, I know you're not going to tell me plot details, but I want to know as you head into season six, what are, what are the conversations you're having 
I ask you this every year and you always give me a good answer. So I'm going to ask again, what are the conversations you're having in the writer's room? Kind of the themes that keep bubbling up as you talk about how we're going to end this story. Boy, we're past that. We got the ending. We got the ending. We got 10 outlines written and we're, we're deep into refining yeah. them now and mm. getting ready to write the scripts. Mm. So I think our, our, our theme is trying to do it in a way that makes us proud and isn't too depressing for us in the process because it's going to be hard <laughs> to say goodbye. It's going to be hard to be depressing when Alpha stands new partner. I'm just saying like that. He's, he's going to bring the wisecracks. Joel Fields, Joe Weisberg, thank you very much for joining Thanks, me. Thanks, Todd. Thank you, Todd. I Think You're Interesting is hosted and executive produced by Todd Vanderwerf. In case you hadn't guessed, that's me. I'm going to do some closing credits now because that's what we do here on I Think You're Interesting. Vox Podcasting is headed up by Marty Mo and Jackie Goldstein. Our executive producer of audio is Nishak Kurwa. Our sound designer is Miles Yule. Logo design is thanks to Victor Ware, Crystal Stevens, and Georgia Cowley. Our production manager is Alex Allwright. Our production coordinator is Paige Bethman. Audio engineering and post-production are thanks to P3 Post. This week we recorded at... The Offices of the Americans somewhere in Brooklyn, New York. The editor, as always, is Peter Leonard. And this week's recording engineer was Stephanie Broderick. I'll be back next week with an interview with someone from the world of arts and entertainment, someone that I think is interesting. Until then, make sure none of your close friends or relatives are spies. 